if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the new chemists. We're glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Here on the new chemists, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is Pranav Dabala, a research fellow at Brigham Women's Hospital. Thanks for joining me today. It is so good to hear from you. Just briefly, I'll inform my audience about you. Pranav Dabala worked as a research associate in 2016 at Brigham Women's Hospital. Following that, he was an R&D intervention intern concerning interventional pain management. Um, in 2016, 2018, he worked as an undergraduate researcher in a computational fluid dynamics uh, lab. He, following that, he worked as an undergraduate researcher in hemodynamics and microfluidics, and currently he serves as a computational heart failure research fellow. Pranav Devala um, was a colleague of mine, or is a colleague of mine. We met in freshman year, a very excellent and studious person. He completed his Bachelor of Science degree in Biomedical Engineering at George Institute of Technology and is currently working on a master's degree in Computer Science. Please welcome Pranav. Thanks Pranav for joining me today. It's good to have you on. Um, so uh, just as we get started, Pranav, I heard you are a uh, research fellow at Brigham Women's Hospital. Um, what have been your longstanding interests in the field of science? Um, yeah, so my longstanding interests uh, have been primarily in the field of uh, computational cardiology, mainly computational research. So trying to leverage some of the things a computer can do, but a human can't easily to try to improve the field of medicine. Yeah. So mainly identifying kind of patterns that humans currently see, because right now doctors undergo a lot of training and uh, see a lot of cases, right? And one of the things that I've heard quite often from a lot of physicians is that there's like a little bit of a gut instinct that people develop, right? Which is from seeing repeated examples of illness or seeing repeated patients and things like that. And so I'm trying to work on methods of quantifying that possibly through a computer and through uh, algorithms of sorts. So it's a very interesting field. And I encourage anyone who's interested in computers and computational research to really explore the field. Okay, that's good, that's good. Um, so computational fluid dynamics is what you focus on in terms of like within the scope of the cardiovascular system or uh, what was your focus primarily? Yeah, so my research at Georgia Tech kind of started out in CFD computational fluid dynamics. Yeah. So kind of measuring how the kind of fluid flow 
can be characterized using specific numbers like Reynolds number or mm -hmm. uh, shear stress, things like that, mm -hmm. to identify points of interesting character in the flow, right? Like if there's a point of stagnation where the fluid's not flowing, that can mm -hmm. be for clotting risk. Um, gradually, I've kind of, uh, I've kind of moved from that towards to seeing kind of how physiology affects flow and more mm -hmm. about how flow influences physiology in terms of okay. kind of cardiac remodeling, kind okay. of heart failure and stuff like that as well. Okay. So um, in terms of, uh, in terms of the project that you're working on, um, do you uh, do any like, has your work had any impact on what's clinical practice or is it primarily just in theory? Um, yeah, so, well, it's currently unpublished. So okay. yeah. we'll see, we'll see where the results go. Well, you, but don't, yeah. you don't have to tell me all of it if it's unpublished. You could just give me surface no, level. Yeah, I'll give you the general scope, right? So um, we're looking at a disease called heart failure, right? It's actually mm -hmm. a syndrome, right? And congenital? it's, no, no, it's not congenital, right? It's okay. a function of aging. It's an okay. aging related illness. Okay. So cardiovascular disease has been pretty advanced and there's been a lot of breakthroughs and innovations in the past you know, X number of years, let's say since like the late 1900s through now, right? And so because of that, heart patients are living longer, right? And one of the things that we're seeing is an increased prevalence of this syndrome called heart failure, mm -hmm. right? Which is primarily characterized by dyspnea on exertion. So it means you have a hard, uh, you have a hard time breathing when you mm -hmm. exercise, your heart function is not kind of up to spec. Mm -hmm. And it's occurring because people are living longer and people are, uh, you know, avoiding major heart conditions and avoiding death, MACE, right, for a longer time, major adverse cardiovascular events mm -hmm. um, for a longer time. So they're developing this disease called heart failure. And so we're looking into kind of how do you identify risk factors in heart failure, right? So mm -hmm. currently there are are a number of risk factors like age, uh, blood pressure, smoking status, like current smoker, ever smoker, things like that. And one of the main biomarkers is a biomarker called NT-proBNP, N-terminal pro-natriuretic uh, peptide, brain natriuretic peptide, mm -hmm. right? So NT-proBNP is extremely useful. It's a marker of left atrial stretch, and it's kind of very useful in identifying who's at risk for heart failure, and who has heart failure. It's a diagnostic criteria for education. But oh, yeah. um, what we're trying to do is now using techniques like ELISA, there have been a lot mm -hmm. of high throughput kind of proteomic biomarker assays, right? Mm -hmm. So these scans look at and try to quantify levels of numbers of biomarkers, right? In the numbers of thousands. And so you have a preponderance of data now, right? Mm -hmm. You have the serum proteomics, the plasma proteomics of mm -hmm like literally thousands and thousands of proteins in something called a longitudinal cohort, right? So oh, basically yeah, yeah. in the 1980s, someone in Minnesota decided to get, gather a group of people and called this the ERIC study. Mm -hmm. Well, not just Minnesota actually, but everywhere. But like, it's a study called the ERIC study, A-R-I-C, where there are a cohort of people that are being followed longitudinally mm -hmm. to uh, explore various endpoints. And our endpoint of interest is heart failure. Mm -hmm. And so in these people, in these 4,000 people, we've had serum proteomics and we know their outcomes, right? Whether they develop an event, whether they die, 
And so we're trying to use uh, statistical analysis, mm -hmm. particularly survival analysis to identify proteomic risk biomarkers, right? But the problem is now there's so many biomarkers in this assay, mm -hmm. right? Thousands and thousands. So statistics becomes a little tough because of multiple testing, Bonferroni correction, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to use kind of computational methods to identify, to parse this data, to identify um, without testing every single possible option, like protein biomarkers, but also kind of interactions between them to try to identify novel pathways to heart failure. Okay, so are the risk factors additive? Uh, yeah, that's part of the hypothesis, right? So yeah. we, we just kind of have the data and we're, we're generating the relationships. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to keep the specific relationships and pathways we quantify to be classified at this time. Or like, I would say like, we're trying to keep it statistically provable, that's right? True. We're trying to keep yeah. it like, so that we can have the most impact in clinical care decision-making, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. So how, yeah. what kind of does a physician consider when putting patients on medicine early, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and how that affects, well, one of the main things also is, right? If we find proteins that people have that make them at higher risk for heart failure, right? Mm -hmm. You can target these people earlier for uh, kind of, social determinants of health interventions, just mm -hmm. general things like that. Make sure that they try to live healthier lives because they know they're at higher risk. Mm -hmm. So, um, but then I guess the overall question that we're looking at is how these things affect physiology, right? How mm -hmm. do they affect specific processes of remodeling in the heart? And, mm -hmm. and what are the specific kind of outcomes that you can imagine in terms of things that are measurable in an echo and stuff like that? Yeah, okay, echocardiogram. And also... Um, just for people who layman's for people who are listening who are not familiar, Eliza, Enzyme Link, and Aminozorbin assay, and any other questions. Um, there are more questions to come. So, how do you maintain view of the bigger picture in your career and in your life in general? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Uh, one of the things I try to do is maybe not worry about some of the bigger life picture things. Like I just try to attack everything a day at a time. I have like major career goals that I am, you know, I've kind of set for myself and I'm trying to follow. One of those is like becoming a physician, which mm -hmm. like, thankfully I will begin that journey soon. And the other is kind of getting into research or doing certain things or affecting standard of care. And like, I kind of had those things in the background, mm -hmm. but generally I like to look at the day-to-day -day and see I like, agree. I agree. look like I have certain things I want to do in terms of advancing my project. What mm -hmm. can I do to maximize that? How do mm -hmm. I kind of go forward and achieve my kind of week? Like I like to take it a day at a time, a week at a time, like a month at a time. And then mm -hmm. three months at a time, I kind of evaluate kind of once every uh, month or so. Like I like, so I have like a series of goals with increasing granularity, I would say, but okay. I try to focus okay. on the more immediate ones. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was listening to, um, there was this conversation and it's interesting that you use the word granularity. Um, my first introduction to that word, to be honest with you, when I was listening to this conversation, they have this uh, discourse, this dialogue between Nobel laureates, ec economics Nobel laureate and a, a variety of them. And he, he, the one of the, I think it was the economics Nobel Lord, 
he spoke about how you know we he was talking about economic change and and he spoke about the granularities associated with making changes and yeah it's interesting that you say that um because many times we want to look at the big picture but it becomes more feasible and it becomes more enjoyable when we take it one day at a time i think i found that to be the case for me so um how have you been adaptive and creative in the field of science outside uh, of or within the scope of your project where have you added to the flavor the creativity flavor or are you progressively yeah. adding uh one of the things is i'm in a burgeoning field right okay. computational analysis in healthcare is fairly new but mm. also offers a lot of promise uh particularly because i kind of straddle the intersection between technology a field that's like really exploding at the speed of light and like you look at in the past maybe 30 years like this the uprising of like companies like google amazon and like analytics mm -hmm. as a whole right and technology is very advanced in terms of algorithms machine learning and things like that and mm -hmm. uh medicine kind of lags behind in adoption of technology for for very obvious reasons right when it comes to someone's health you want tried and true methods before mm -hmm. anything else mm -hmm. and you want to make sure that everything that you propose to a patient is evidence based mm -hmm. is kind of proven in randomized controlled trials etc 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 right like mm -hmm. you want to be very careful with how very educational and, conversation yeah <laughs> no yeah definitely yeah keep going keep going i'm listening <laughs> but there are a number of methods that you can use and google and netflix and amazon do particularly like have you ever seen targeted advertisements on the internet like yeah. there are things that amazon or mainly netflix i like to use the netflix example it likes to know what you want to watch before you even know it yourself right mm -hmm. and that's a i think a field that can really be ported to medicine right there's a potential because an individual patient that isn't really the best or isn't really the most up to date on their own condition right they're not fully aware of their own genetic predispositions they don't have a full genome mapping and they don't really know how to interpret that i mean some do definitely and maybe that's a controversial statement so uh, i would love to have that discussion at some point but there's a number of ways to use kind of genomic and omic data to uh -huh to try to predict whether a person is going to be sick or whether they have kind of a predisposition towards getting sick or if we can profile people it's a field called phenotyping right mm -hmm. it's very advanced in kind of technology and consumerism in terms of predicting what products you want to buy what movies you want to watch and it it's very useful in predicting outcomes but i i believe that particularly personalized medicine or the field mm -hmm. of applying this kind of technology yeah. to derive therapies but also risk prevention and preventative medicine that are tailored to individual patients has a huge promise right mm -hmm. and so now is kind of right at the the cusp of when people are noticing this and are beginning the experiments are beginning the trials to really mm -hmm. uh implement these things and i think i I I kind of have a perspective as kind of a graduate student in computer science at Georgia Tech as someone who's a fan of the field of computer science right mm -hmm. to be able to see uh what changes are happening what are the new advanced methods um and propose those to kind of examine uh things that have been traditionally rooted in statistics but to try to use other algorithms not 
well, computation and statistics are very hand in hand and very closely related, but like mm-hmm. uh, to try to shift maybe purely statistical methods towards maybe computational feature identification methods okay. using some of these things like Google and Amazon and et cetera. Machine yeah. learning as a whole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can tell you, I can tell you, well read, well read. So um, as we progress, how have you sought and found the right environment for you to thrive scientifically and intellectually? Obviously, you went to Georgia Tech, and that's where I met you. Um, and you continued studying there, and now you're at Brigham. So, how did you seek or find the right environment for you to thrive scientifically and intellectually? What What did you do? Did you obviously you have a system in which you uh, go through your days and then you evaluate it every three weeks or anything of that sort? Um, what was the guide for you to find the right environment? How did you find um, I would say I'm lucky in that the right environment kind of found me, but I like to say the environment oh. is defined by the mentor. Wow. So to have a good mentor, to have a good roadmap, to mm-hmm. make to make kind of a map of the possibility, right? To everything you can do, who you want to be, what you want to do, mm-hmm. right? And to find that and to really be inspired by the people you work with in a way that kind of pushes you, I think is quite important. So like, regardless of your situation, whatever situation you're in, whatever research you're in, whatever lab you're in, like to try to find a mentor, Mm -hmm. to try to find uh, someone who inspires you, a project Mm -hmm. that inspires you or coworkers Mm -hmm. that inspire you and try to like be more more like them in your own mentors and to take take kind of ideas from successful people and to try Mm -hmm. to implement that in your own life and to Mm -hmm. try to find a group of successful people, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've heard I've heard statements such as "iron chopping iron," and I've also heard statements such as, you know, um, if you want to know where you'll be in the next five years, look at who you're hanging around. So those, those it does. Uh, I think experience does show that your company and the friends you keep uh, do affect where you end up and the choices that you make, whether you know it or not. Um, but uh, how well have been your most uh, effective and impactful ideas to date in your personal life or in your academic studies or even your, st- your approach to studying? What has been most effective and impactful? Well, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to direct this question a little bit differently, right? Okay, uh, do, do my, you, do you. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things uh, my dad loves to say, he's, he's really active in the startup space and has dealt with a lot of startups is like, like ideas without execution are just hallucination, right? So like anyone can have like great ideas and like ideas can be effective and maybe some people are idea people, right? Like Mm -hmm. idea men. And for me, like, I like to say like, maybe I'm not in the stage of my career for that yet. I'm more of the execution, right? I gotta get the execution down, right? So Mm -hmm. one of the things is I have great, great mentors that have a lot of ideas, right? Mm -hmm. And it's up to me to implement that and execute it, right? So there's time for me to understand fully, especially in the field of medicine and the Mm -hmm. space, right? Like I have a lot to learn and I will be learning all about physiology and all about medicine. Mm -hmm. And at that point, when I have an informed kind of scope of the field, Mm -hmm. uh, I'll I'll go to try to make ideas. But right now I want to really perfect my craft of execution, right? So like to take an idea and to really bring it into fruition reality. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of worked well for me because a lot of people have ideas and a lot of people who are much smarter than me come up 
with great ideas and great grants and projects. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad to be a part of them and to be able to execute them. Mm -hmm. But I think that's also a great skill to have is to like affect your idea, right? In the question, effective and impactful, right? So to affect or to implement an idea. And so I've had a lot of interesting kind of things that I've uh, implemented. I can't take credit for the idea, but I can definitely take credit for the implementation in terms of kind of advanced methods of biomarker identification. I I really come back to this because that's my work and I'm most proud of it. Okay, there's um, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so the the biomarker pipeline that I made to try not only to help identify conditions related to heart failure, but also CAD, exercise metrics, et cetera, like building, building a code base, a software, for physicians and clinicians to use to identify and impact kind of medicine and treatment, right? Um, But also kind of some of the, you know, exercise, talking to patients, like uh, affecting kind of other ideas and grants and projects through my Halfstone project and et cetera are also things I love to do, so. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with being humble. I completely agree. It's important to see a scope and see a place in the whole project where you are at this time. So yeah, if you, if where you are, where you're functioning is to execute ideas, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like even with me, I'm, I'm, of course there are a lot of people there who are much smarter than I am, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> so yeah, because uh, yeah, it's a journey, and yeah, like, I, I am working on this um, project. I can't really talk about it too much because we haven't published. A, a lot of things as yet, but um, I'm working on this project in which we're coming up with alternatives to inhibit quorum sensing, which is this communication pathway within bacteria, among bacteria, density-dependent regulation, um, and we're making modifications to different molecules and stuff like that. And the idea is most of the time, up to this point, I've been following or executing the ideas that we've been decided on. So, you know, nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with that. So, you know, it's interesting that you are working on a cardiac project. I just thought I would drop this in. Um, I remember uh, being in the 2310 class in which you worked on the cardiac that watch. So it seems like that's been a common trend, uh, common theme, common trend for you. So um, how do you maintain a balanced life given all your responsibilities and accomplishments? Are you balanced, Pranav? Or are you working to attain balance? Or um, how are you keeping it together, even in this pandemic? Let me make it more practical. How are you still stable? You know, I think uh, part of that is really loving what you do, loving your work. And I think that's become more crucial in the pandemic. Like, mm-hmm. you can see my bed is right behind me. My computer is right here. So, like, in a given day, in a given time, that's I walk all two feet to my work. I go to bed. I work. I work, go to bed. Right? So, like, but the point is when your work is kind of what you want to do and what it's fun, right? It's... it doesn't really feel like work and that's kind of a cliche maybe but like I think to to repeat another cliche to add on to it sometimes like it's about the journey and not the destination and this is something I've kind of really taken to heart more recently but like Mm -hmm. when you're focused on the destination right and you're just staying on the destination on the destination on the destination you have to get there right you kind of you lose the present you lose kind of you're always thinking about when i get here you're always planning for if i don't get here what do i do next 
And then when you do get here, you're like, okay, like, great. Like now what, right? So you really have to, you have to enjoy the process, enjoy the journey more than wanting to get to the destination. Mm -hmm. And I think when you do that, everything balances out in terms of life responsibilities. I mean, gratefully for me during the pandemic, I don't really have that many responsibilities for Mm -hmm. life or otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. I'm at home, like most other people, kind of very like minimal contact with other people, right? Trying to, I live with my grandmother. So Mm -hmm. trying to minimize the number of people I have contact with. And, you know, I've kind of found a balance in working virtually with my team. Mm -hmm. So they're, I, they're a great set of people. I love working with them and Mm -hmm. that's like social contact, but you know, when, when, when you enjoy your work and if that's all you have, it's not so bad good that's good so in terms of your success what would you say has complimented your success so far uh well going right back to the execution right so like i think i've been successful due to my mentality in that like when someone when someone asks me to do something maybe i have a little bit of fearlessness and saying yeah sure i'll do it or like i'm not so worried about failure when I take the project and, and I failed, I've done a number of projects unsuccessfully. I've kind of gotten a lot of, I wouldn't classify, you know, negative results as failure, mm-hmm. but yeah, I've seen my fair share of negative results. It's definitely not failure, but like, I, I'm not, there's a low hesitation to trying new things, to trying or learning new things. And so I think that being willing to, do stuff, being willing to step into a new role, being willing to try to be what your team needs has really helped my success in a way, right? Like, I think most of my success is because I found right people to guide me and people have kind of pushed me along my own path while I've kind of focused on doing the best I can. So great mentors at work, great mentors at home, right? Mm -hmm. And people have a plan and kind of help me chart that plan for my own goals. And I just kind of follow what people say. So it's been great, but yeah, being, being willing to do anything that people throw at me, regardless of kind of whether it's difficult, time consuming, you know, like tedious, mm-hmm. <laughs> most, most of the time it's really tedious. Yeah, but, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So how have you maintained vision and teamwork in your environment? How do you maintain those things? How do you maintain maintain sight of your goals and your endeavors, as well as the collaborative spirit in your in the environment and in your endeavors? Um, yeah, so I guess just to give a little bit of background, my project is very computational based, right? Okay. But my team is maybe, they're all very used to statistical methods, but not really focused on computational methods. And mm-hmm. so, they know the statistics behind an idea and they're very good at implementing things, but maybe I have a little bit of a different skill set. And so a lot of computational things fall on me, but to maintain vision and teamwork, I think it's important to have an outlook about teaching, right? Or to try to teach others, to try to convey your thing. It's not just about doing, but also teaching and, and, you know, laying the groundworks for others to repeat what you've done, but also to learn from your mistakes and learn from your kind of detours to come back to Mm -hmm. your ideas. So 
I will I'll explore something new, new computational method, new like code method, uh, new results. But then I always take a step back to summarize my results, to come back, teach it to everyone, even if they're not, you know, related to the project, so that they can maybe think of ideas to implement in their own projects, right? And that's what kind of worked out well for me. But I think it's also kind of helped the people around me. I hope. Yeah, that's I good. That's good. Reproducibility is important in science, especially in research. Yeah. So, Pranav, uh, why did you choose BME as a field of the field to major in when you are at Georgia Tech? Why did you choose BME? What was appealing to you? I know I I chose it. Um, however, why did you choose it? Well, I'm curious as to why you choose BME, right? So, like, let's 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 hear you what you have to say, and then maybe okay. I'll I'll okay. repeat what your answer is. Oh, Definitely. okay, okay, sure. Let's go there. Um, initially, I chose it, even though I ended up changing my major afterwards. Um, Initially, I chose it because I was interested in medical device design. However, yeah. as time progressed, my interest more became more centered around drug design. And biochemistry provided me a good foundation, a good impetus. And in some ways, in many ways, I'm actually doing a lot of medicinal chemistry, or I'm starting to like move around that target um, for my research at this time. So yeah, so definitely. I'm along a path that's heading toward a good direction, I would say so, and I'm thankful for it. So what about you? Yeah. Uh, well, I think BME and Georgia Tech kind of fell nicely because one, I'm kind of, in a way, a natural born engineer. <laughs> like I like to, to figure out how things work. I like to take things apart. I think that's kind of what my parents say was the first things like, oh, this kid has to be an engineer because I like took apart everything in my house. Like I did the same did thing, dude. <laughs> I did the same thing. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. There's something about the curiousness, I think, of yeah. a, maybe a young kid. Um, but also, I think I kind of tried to, I maintained that curiousness through high school, through science, right? Being science, scientists are innately curious people, mm -hmm. I believe. And so engineering was kind of, not only do how do like scientific principles function, but I think there was a little bit of practicality in the realness in some of the things that engineers explore, mm -hmm. right? And some of the phenomena like mechanical engineering is really focused with how do you get specific mechanical things to work better. Biomedical engineering is more about how do you get specific kind of medical phenomena to work in an interesting way. And so I always knew I wanted to be a physician. I think that was kind of my- Heartbeat. That, that was my that was my main goal for the first one third of my life like and I think uh, I was kind of predisposed towards an engineer uh, to, towards being an engineer I think my father was an engineer mm -hmm. way back in a different life now he does uh, work related to executive things but mm -hmm. I think he kind of inspired me and I wanted to you know I I knew that college was never going to be the last step for me mm -hmm. and so it was an opportunity to kind of do something I enjoy Mm -hmm. And to really kind of pursue my passion in a way, and biomedical engineering kind of very like very much lent itself towards that. Sounds like a little flame, yeah, which is very good. Um, so, do you have an, any advice to those wanting to pursue the field the field that you are currently working in? Uh, so computational work. You could speak of you could speak towards those wanting to pursue computational work in a biomedical context. Or those wanting to pursue uh, engineering degrees or whatever you prefer? Uh, yeah, so like for those wanting to pursue and like computational work, right? Like get involved early, I would say, like mm. uh, learn to code. It's never too late, 
to, to learn to code, to learn, you know, how to do all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, to learn, it's a different type of logic, right? You look mm-hmm. at things in a very algorithmic way. Oh, yeah. And I think that outlook is good to have at some point to really be able to distill decisions down to algorithms in life, but also to be able to, you know, look at specific logical statements, to look at logical, you know, code, mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Um, then just find projects that you're interested in, right? To fo- follow the follow the fields. I, I want to say follow the money, but it's more about following the project, yeah. following the idea, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Find people that are doing what you want to do and, get in, and try to see if you can help in any way, contribute. I think I kind of started out doing a lot of volunteer positions or like unpaid mm-hmm. uh, positions. Uh, research at college is always unpaid, mm-hmm. but so I kind of started out there. I really got invested. I developed my, you know, one of the things I like to say is your the value is determined kind of by your technical skill set in a way. So like I really focused on building my technical skill set mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of things I could do, yeah, yeah. Um, things I understood and kind of followed what I, my passion, some of the projects from there. But and I think getting an engineering degree is very much similar. Like you, you find out you want to do it and then you try to follow a project that has done it and you kind of get in the field. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's all sorts of advice for wanting to get yeah, involved yeah. in medicine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of dry. Yeah, that's true. But, so what's the most beneficial advice you ever received? Um, well, yeah, I think there's two pieces kind of hand in hand. I mean, it's really involved in my kind of decision making right now and kind of one of the decisions I have to make. So like, I will say like, <laughs> the first thing is I like, don't don't focus on the destination, enjoy the journey, right? If you're, if you're focusing on a destination, you're definitely not gonna enjoy what, what happens once you get there, right? So like, mm-hmm. if you enjoy the journey, then the destination kind of fades away. It's not as important mm-hmm. and you don't get as hung up in it. And so I think that's, that's very critical, right? So like, mm-hmm not like have a plan, like have a plan where you're going, but at the same Mm -hmm. time, like enjoy, enjoy the now, right? Enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess the other thing is someone recently told me like, uh, if you want to be a doctor, right? Be a good expletive, (laughs) be a good doctor first, right? Like there's, there's a sort of responsibility in the word. Mm -hmm. Like, so don't focus on research. Don't focus on, oh, I want to be a cardiologist. I want to be interventional radiologist. Like, don't focus on any of that, right? And like, be be fundamental. Like, sure up your fundamentals, right? If you want to be a doctor, be a good doctor first and foremost. There's a certain responsibility of the word or of the role of the physician when you have your patient's life in your hands, etc. Oh, yeah. Like, be a good doctor first, then then research, right? And this is from a very prominent research physician, right? So someone someone who's made their claim on research, right? And they're telling me like, be a good doctor first, research comes second. And that kind of really like rang true for me because maybe I all I've seen is research, like all I've done, well, not always, all I've done is research mm-hmm. and I've kind of seen physicians and I've seen their work. And mm-hmm. like, it really, it really gave me the step back I needed to understand like, look, like now is the time to, mm-hmm to train in, in that, like to train in being a good clinician, being a mm-hmm. good, you know, person first, then being, being a good doctor, like there's, there's something with the word that yeah. it's, it's a responsibility, not only to yourself, but to others. 
the society, the society, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so be a good doctor. Once you are a good doctor, find something you love, mm-hmm. research, do it, and you'll be fine, right? But be, be a good doctor first. Yeah, yeah, so I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I can tell you're very passionate. I almost feel inspired. Um, at the same time, um, you know, I think it's important to remember that now is, now is the time for us to take advantage of the opportunities that we have in front of us and try and make the most of them. So, Pranav, um, even in this pandemic time. So, Pranav, it was really good to talk with you. Thanks for joining me today. Concept development three, structures, confirmations, and projections. Structures are diagrammatic representations of different molecules, and they provide a means of understanding what is occurring in nature. There are a variety of different structures used in chemistry. The main examples in the following discussion will be Lewis electron dot structures, condensed structures, and bond line structures. Lewis dot structures are built on some key ideas such as the atom's valency and the octet rule. There are also specific exceptions for period three and beyond. Valency. Valency refers to the amount of electrons an atom will lose, many times resulting in a positively charged cation gain, many times resulting in a negatively charged ion anion or share, typically occurring in covalent molecules, in order to have a stable noble gas electron configuration. Valency can be determined using the periodic table. The group number, vertical column numbers in the periodic table is designated the valency, typically, and this valency normally corresponds with charge or oxidation number and its subsequent sign is dependent on the type of atom, its reactivity, and what it is reacting with. Um, also, you have the octet rule, which is a principle with applications in resonance theory, simple chemical mechanisms and reactions. There are exceptions for period three and onward, depending on the atom, its reactivity, and what it is reacting with. There are exceptions to the octet rule. There are different ways to write structures. You have the condensed structures, you have the bond line structures, which are typically seen in organic chemistry, and you have different conformations which help us to better understand the interactions of atoms and their bond angles when it comes to angle strain, torsional strain, etc. You have projections such as the Newman projection and Fisher projection, which can be read about in other texts. Thanks for listening. We're glad you were able to tune into this podcast. Once again, this is The New Chemist, where we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. Thanks again for listening. Note, the views on this podcast represent those of my guests and I. Thank you.